My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. Hi, I'm Brian Rice and welcome to Two Glasses In. I'm here with winemaker Doug Marjoram, a pioneer in Santa Barbara County wine country. And we are two glasses in on his M5, a Rhone blend, and also a rosé from his new label, Barden. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you, good to be here. I'm honored to have you because I have to say, I really do consider you one of the pioneers of Santa Barbara wine country, not to make you feel like I'm aging you in any way, but you were there in the foundation or the coming of age, I would say, of Santa Barbara wine country. Um, You've seen the beginnings back when we were five, six wineries, and and now we're over 200. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's been Um, incredible. Tell me about how you discovered wine and ended up in wine country here. Oh, I... um my parents took us on the European vacation and they bought a Volkswagen Vanagon and you know the little one that pops yeah. up and stuff like that. We were five, so I had an older brother and older sister and they were they're much older actually. So as soon as we got to France, they split. Like bye. And so I was stuck with my parents. I was not very happy about that. <laughs> I was fourteen years old. So pimples, you were the youngest? Pimples, long hair, yeah, yeah. I was the youngest, and I wanted to be home with my friends, and I didn't want to be in, in, this, in this van again with my parents. But then, you know, right off the bat, we drove down south, and we went down to uh, the Rhone Valley. We started going to wineries, and one of the first places we went was Clos du Pop, and went down into the cellars of Clos du Pop, and they gave me a Tastevin, which is how you used to drink wine, taste wine. The winemaker had his pipette, and he was taking wine out of the pipette with, you know, great flourish and putting it into my little Tastevin, teaching us how to taste it. You know, it's this dark cellar, it's mold everywhere, and I'd really not had alcohol, (laughs) to to say. And we were tasting these wines, and I I literally was just, this is insane, this is incredible. Really, so you knew what you were tasting, or you you were just discovering? I mean, that was was my first taste, but luckily my first, everyone has their light bulb wine. You know, they're they're all of a sudden going about life, and all of a sudden they taste wine, like, wait a minute. I'm into this, or I like this, mm. and, and that, that to me, luckily happened to me at a very young age. They, so that whole trip, they let me drink wine at every meal, and we were tasting different wines, we were going to nice restaurants. Hey, you have some pretty cool parents, I, I have do to say. have very cool yeah. parents, and even when we got back from the trip, uh, I was 15 at the time we got back, and, and uh, I'd go down with my dad to the liquor store, and I started buying Chateauneuf de Pops. 66, 59 Chateauneuf de Pops, and I had them in my room. Now, we lived in Woodland Hills. They were aging very quickly yeah. uh, in, my, in my room. But so for special occasions, they would say, oh, Doug, why don't you get one of your wines? And I'd go to my room and get a bottle of Chateauneuf, and I'd open it for the whole table, and I'd pour it, you know, just like, a, and it was, you know, it's one of those things. You're getting a lot of attention. You're telling them about the wine. And, and uh, so then in high school and, and college, I was always the guy when I was working in restaurants that knew more about wine than anybody else. So it just I was just incrementally more, but I knew more. So I was always sort of the, the wine guy. You were a renaissance man. Yeah, at 14, 15. Even more incredible was that, that, that next year, my senior year in high school, my parents had an exchange student come live in the house because we had two extra bedrooms because my brother and sister had been long gone. It was this beautiful French woman, and we fell in love. And so when I graduated from high school, and every summer after that, for the next three years, I'd go and live in France with her 
And we travel around and we drink wine, we go out to eat. She Needless to say, is she taught you French or you already knew French? Is, was no, that? I was taking French both in high school and college. So I, I, had a, I was taking French, but also being there, my French got... Well, I'm sure that expedited. It did. It got, <laughs> it, my French is very good uh, every once in a while when I'm in France. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> I pick it up pretty quickly and, and, and can speak fluently when I'm there. Uh, I have a hard time when I'm not, it's not in my, my mind. I read a story uh, <laughs> that while you were in France during those days, um, that you really loved the Parisian cafes and that you loved the culture of yeah. wine in France compared to here in the United yeah. States. Tell me a little bit about those early days. So that's, that's what sort of uh, uh, formed the idea of what we ended up doing at Winecast. Um, so I wanted to, when I, after I graduated from college, I'd worked in restaurants either as a cook or as a server, uh, going all the way through college. And then when I graduated, I, I literally, I was unemployable. I had a BA in uh, economics from UCSB, and it was the height of the recession in 1981. I told my father, I, want, I said, I want to open this little cafe and serve wines by the glass and do this Next little... to the bottle shop? Well, this is, at that time, that, that, that had not happened yet. But okay. I was just saying I wanted to open a place. I actually wanted to open at the old Gino's on Coast Village Road. Yeah, right. I don't know if you remember Gino's. It's like this total greasy spoon. Because <laughs> yeah. it was for available. And uh, he's like, no, it's a stupid idea. And Wine by the guys, you can't make any money. You should open a bar. You can put in, you know, four ounces of, of tonic and an ounce of gin and you can sell it for a lot of money. But wine is expensive. You open a bottle and you're pouring expensive product. You can't make any money. But then he met a guy who owned the wine cask, which was a bottle shop. And he said, you should put the, your son should put his wine bar next to my bottle shop. And they would be very complimentary. It turns out they were going out of business. So we bought the entire bottle shop, including the inventory. And what it turns out to be the most important part of it, the lease. He had like a 20 year mm-hmm. lease for like 15 cents a square foot. And we, we, got, we took over the whole business for $25,000. Right at the heart, <laughs> the heart of downtown Right Santa in the heart Barbara. of downtown, which, I mean, was just then, which was just then coalescing around that part of town. And, mm-hmm. and so we, we opened up and you know, we really didn't do very well right off the bat. The food was, food was good. It was simple food, like soups and salads and croissant sandwiches and cheese plates. And, and the, we were serving like 40 different wines by the glass. People had no idea about the by the glass thing. It was no one, there was only one other place in California that was serving premium wine by the glass. Really? The London Wine Bar up in San Francisco. We were the second to do it. We had a whole wine preservation system which we just wow. dispersed the wine. And uh, you know, we were saying, you know, would you buy a bottle for $40? Like, yeah. Well, why don't you buy a quarter bottle for $10? They still didn't get it. It was just, so, just such a new concept. That's amazing. You're a pioneer in the wine by the glass. Yeah, we, no one it, before that it was uh, Burgundy, Chablis, and Rosé. Unbelievable. That's what you got in a restaurant. So we were we really were trying to get people to try these wines, and then they could go to the bottle shop and buy them, mm. which was a nice complimentary Genius. good. But then uh, I'd have my parents come down and sit in the front window to when people would walk by, oh, look, there's people in there, let's go in. Then Barbara Fairchild, about a year and a half, two years into it, wrote an article in Gourmet Magazine about how great it was, how, what a unique concept Boom. it was. And then it blew yeah, up. For, you know, we, you know, we, went to, we went from 81 to 2007, and then I sold, it. I sold the whole thing, bottle shop, restaurant, catering business, the wine cask in Los Olivos, I sold the whole thing. You're an incredible entrepreneur, I have to say. I, I compliment you not only for being a good businessman, but obviously yeah. having a true passion that you yeah. followed and, and you were committed to bringing it to the world. Yeah, but then I saw people like you guys and Clendenin and Lindquist who were having better lives than I was <laughs> making wine. And I realized that's what I really want to do because it's 
they had a better lifestyle, they were making money, they were making wine, which is their passion. And the restaurant business is a bitch. It's a lot, a lot of work. I mean, we were, we were good at it, but I, I remember one night we sat down after having a bunch of wine probably, and we wrote down the, 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 the steps to having someone come into your restaurant and leave. And there was like 260 steps really? from taking their coat to valet parking to confirming their reservation to wow. you know setting their plate. I mean, resetting. It's just it's fraught with peril. Whereas you know you, you can make wine and you make your style, and if you like it, it's good. You just stick to your guns. And if someone doesn't like your wine, that's fine. Then, I then totally agree. I, I learned really early on being a busboy at Enterprise Fish Company yeah. when I was 16 that that was not the business no. I was going to be. You're <laughs> smart. You're very smart because um, it is really, really complicated yeah. and really, and you know, with, especially with the wine cask, it was such a fine dining. We had the grand award. It was white tablecloth. It was expensive. You you just couldn't make a mistake, and uh, uh, it's just I would I I love the business, uh, but uh, 2007 was a great day when it, when I sold it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't mind, let's go back to the, the early days that I remember of Winecast. Oh, the little space, yeah. And the little space, and, and especially the, the, the futures that you created. Yeah. You created this wine futures program that all of the wineries in Santa Barbara were, were celebrated yeah. through. And all of us had our first chance to bring our wines to market right. through that futures program. And I remember you would come up and we would taste through barrels and you would say, I really like this Cabernet. This is different. Let's try a blend. You, you know, think about a blend and you yeah. kind of give us feedback from the market, yeah. which was really helpful. And also to bring unique things to my customers that you guys exactly. weren't you're just your basic production. But, uh, so that was foundational for us. Yeah. And, um, and actually, we, we jumped to about 18,000 cases wholesale and all over the, the country yeah. um, as a result of those beginning days that you were and part you're of. You're not alone. I mean, uh, Sea Smoke. We debuted them at the at the futures tasting. Tinsley, all these new, yeah. and, and then at that time, you know, distributors were coming out to discover what was new, and they'd all come to this tasting. And I'd go to, I still to this day, I go out, I still see people have the catalogs, you know, every yeah. single catalog about. They were well written. You wrote the yeah. wine notes for those, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you're a prolific writer, and I, you have a great palate. <laughs> I'm a big believer in the thesaurus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, for other ways to describe fruity. <laughs> since we're on that topic, just as a segue here, when you describe wines, is it dangerous to say this wine tastes like tar or asphalt no. or cat piss? No, well, no, no. If they do, they do. I mean, Sauvignon Blanc is cat piss all the time. It seems like tar. I think it's actually a, po a positive element. I like tar as, mm -hmm. a, as a positive thing. Does it scare consumers away though when you hear? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think so. I think all those adjectives, like you say, blueberries or something like that, and people actually say, "Did you put blueberries?" In it? <laughs> yeah, right. No, we didn't put blueberries. That's just a manifestation of the aromatics from the grape. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to give full credit to that whole futures idea to Jim Clendenin. Mm. Uh, in my sort of second year there, Jim was on his like first year of making wine and he of course didn't have any money and he came to me and he said, hey, why don't I bring down some barrel samples? You can sell these to your customers ahead of time on futures, we'll give them a, a big discount and then you can pay me the money so I can pay my grape bills and, and my bottling bills. And so we, we started out just with Jim, and then we moved to Jim and Bob, then we moved to Jim, Bob, and Hitchy Bows. Then we, it expanded from there. But, but the, whole, the whole idea of it was to raise you know, the cash flow situation. You, know, you, you do harvest and you owe this huge sum of money for grape bills after you've just bottled everything. So you have this, this bottleneck of, of, of cash flow problems. And Jim is a wizard. I mean, I consider yeah. him the wizard of Santa yeah. Barbara wine country. Uh, Jim has been one of the best promoters of Santa Barbara County of anybody. He's mm -hmm. still, he's on the road all the time. 
uh, promoting his wines as well as Santa Barbara as a, as a whole. And, and tell uh, me about when you guys first got together. Uh, you, you and Bob Lindquist and Jim Clinton and joint ventured on a project called Vidanova. Right. So then, so the future started sort of happened in eighty, I think eighty three, and then we started a new a company in nineteen eighty six called Vitanova. Vitanova. Right. There was a vineyard across the street from Bienacito called Rancho Veneto, which became available, and neither Jim nor Bob through Obon Climata Coupe felt that they could absorb that vineyard, but they really wanted to capture that vineyard. So we started Vita Nova and took the, the fruit from that vineyard, primarily Chardonnay. We also made a, a Sauvignon Blanc Simeon blend, and we also made a Sangiovese Merlot blend. That's sort of what we went out the gate for, sort of things that we liked that we wanted to make. It kind of morphed into just making Chardonnay for a private label for the restaurants I mentioned, Emeralds, Patina Group, and, and Roy Yamaguchi. And then, in, you know, by 1998, we'd been working together all these years, and then Jim offered to buy us both out. And so I used that to start Marjoram in 2001. Got it, got it. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara brilliant. Visit SantaBarbaraCA.com to plan your stay. Tell me about this Vin Gris. So, um, you know, part of the whole reason that Barden came about was um, because Eric got hired at Sanford and Benedict. You know, Eric Malay. Yeah, yeah. And so Eric was farming where I was living, and we were good friends, and still, still are good friends. And uh, and so I had a total in at Sanford and Benedict, and so and we we just moved the winery to Buellton. We're looking out the window at Sam at you know Santa Rita Hills. Then Lon Cantata hired us as consultants, and then just the whole thing got, we got to make Santa Rita Hills wines. And so, but we didn't want to make them under Marjoram because it's such a departure to what Marjoram was doing. And so Barden was my middle name. Mm -hmm. So we put it under the Barden label. So all nice. the Santa Rita Hills stuff is under Barden. Yeah, this is Sanford and Benedict uh, Van Gris. Which is really hard to get access to. There's a, there's a queue. Yeah. yeah. Um, we jumped in front of that line. I would imagine that was a tough decision to make you know, a rosé out of it versus making a red wine out of it, considering the prestige of that, that vineyard. Right, but it's, it's, it's a lot of signe, so it's making the red wine better, and we're also oh, getting a little bonus rosé. Okay. It's a tiny production. It's only a couple hundred cases. Nice. But we did press some as well. But it's all barrel fermented, and, but it's, uh, it's young vines at Sanford and Benedict, so it's stuff that they, they might not sell anyway as a, as a true... Got it, cheers. got it. Yeah, cheers. Um, tell me about your kind of philosophy on rosé. Well, uh, the philosophy used to be uh, we seigneate everything uh, because, you know, in Santa Barbara County to get Grenache was impossible. Mm -hmm. And so the little bit of Grenache we got, we made red Grenache out of. And, and then made M5 out of. Uh, I didn't even make a single Grenache wine because we got so little Grenache, we used it all for M5. I used to always say, if I take some out to make the Grenache, I'm, I'm hurting right. M5. But then in, I guess it was 2012, we were sharing, meaning sharing, Randall got 95% of the vineyard, I got 5% of the vineyard at Alamo Creek. Okay. You know that vineyard? No, I'm not familiar. It's, up, it's actually in San Luis Obispo. Okay. But when Randall's uh, company sold, he left that vineyard and the owner said, you know, would you like all the fruit? So we took the entire vineyard of Grenache, which was about 12 acres. Oh, that's a good size. And so we were able to make press Grenache. Mm. 
it's a pretty prolific vineyard. So we changed the whole philosophy in 2012 instead of making Taval style, Sanye rosé, you know, heavier, you know, higher alcohol to making a press rosé. And that's the, So that's less we, skin that's contact, we, yeah, a little just lighter, no skin contact Provencal. Yeah, just mm -hmm. right to the press, press. Very Provencal style. I had just come off consulting from uh, 8 to 12 at Chen Bleu in south of France. I don't know if you ever wow. met, met her. Yeah. Nicole Rollet and her husband mm. opened this winery and they hired me as a consultant for their red wine program. Well, that seems counterintuitive to me to have an American consulting in France. Does that happen very often? It should happen more. I mean, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, the, they fell in love with M5 Red. Okay. And her mother was in a nursing home here in Santa Barbara, and they would come out and visit her, and then they would take wine back to France, and they would do these blind tastings of, you know, all these different wines, and their favorite wine was M5, like every single time they did a tasting. And so she asked me if I'd come over and help with develop their program. And What a compliment. Uh, it was great. It was really fun. And uh, I was one of three consultants, hmm. uh, Philip Combi who obviously is a very famous French winemaker. Flying winemaker? Yeah, he's a, he consults for hundreds of wineries, mm -hmm. but Philippe, Philip is, is a, you know, he's a great riper, especially at that time when everything was, you know, super ripe, super extracted, super alcoholic, Going super for power. sweet, yeah. And I'm not, mm -hmm. never have been. I saw, we were at odds all the time. Mm -hmm. And then the other consultant was Zelma Long, who was who's primarily in, in uh, South Africa now? Okay, uh, she used to be the winemaker for Simi Winery. Oh, sure. Yeah, she's yeah. very she's a great consultant. I really enjoyed working with her, uh, but we were at odds a little bit too. I you know I have strong opinions how wine should be made. She she wanted to sort of go with what they were doing, and I wanted to say no. You should do this, and you should do this, and mm -hmm. and uh, so after about four years, I decided to not work for them anymore because <laughs> they didn't do anything I said to do I mean nothing yeah I, they built a separate white wine uh, room the caveat on this is this is this is the point where you're just like wait I shouldn't be saying this the caveat on this is the wines are awesome mm. it, 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 I think they could have been awesome-er there was there was things I thought they could have could have made the wines better but so it's just a great fruit source yeah, the whole yeah, gist of it it was a mm -hmm. beautiful estate was that I learned how to make uh, rosé in that Provencal style okay. by being there consulting on the red wine and I, I use some of the same techniques for our rosé production that I learned in France. And having been a wine merchant before, I mean you've tasted the world of rosé, I'm yeah. sure. It's funny that you've, you know, you're a California winemaker but you tend to prefer old world style. Yeah. I got sort of busted on that because you know you go to some of these markets, you go to uh, New York and you go in these restaurants and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we only carry old world wines. And you're like, the world was created all at the same time. <laughs> there's, no, there's not a new world and an old world. And when's the last time you were in France? You know, they're like, well, we've never been there. It's like, well, they are, they are way more new world than we are actually. We're, we've embraced old world techniques of you know, open top fermentations, hand punch down, where they're doing everything pump over, everything stainless. Yeah, they love know. the technology. Yeah, they love the technology. And so toys. I just don't get this old world, new world, but there's a whole group of psalms and, and wine professionals who will only buy old world wines and you, you're, you're like an American and you're discriminated against. Imagine going to Paris and having going to a restaurant like, we only carry American wines. You know? <laughs> no, we, we don't want, want to get any of these wines from France. <laughs> and so you, they won't even taste your wine. Actually, that might be a good experiment. Yeah, well, I think there's actually a few restaurants now in Paris who are, who are focusing on American wines, huh. which is really cool. 
the whole gist of it is we are making as good a wines as, as any place in the world, obviously. They don't taste exactly the same because they're from a different part of the world, but they have good and high qualities that are within their own rights. And that's what we love about wine, right? Yeah. The fact that it's really site-specific yeah. and capturing the essence of yeah. that site in the bottle for our consumers. But the, the, the whole, the other part of that whole railing on Facebook and other social media about restaurants that only buy old world wines is that someone suddenly sent me a little note on Facebook saying, hey, Doug, you might want to check your delectable page. You know what delectable yeah, is? Yeah, of course. So a delectable is a, is, a, is a Facebook app or iPhone app that you can right. post all the wines you drink and tell people about how good they were, how bad they were. Yeah. And, and it's a sharing app, app so every, you, if you want to see if a wine's ready, you can go on that app and see who drank it. It's almost like said. a Yelp for wine. Yeah, right? it's like a Yelp for wine. Mm -hmm. And he's like, why does he want me to check, check, check my, uh, my Yelp my, uh, delectable app? And then I go through it. And every single wine I've posted is French or Italian <laughs> or German or Austrian. What's wrong with you? You're it's drinking a, wines from other countries. <clears throat> well, um, I tend to not post the stuff I drink locally mm -hmm. just because I'm so, those are just, you know, wines. Everyday wines, everyday right? Wines. Yeah, they, so now I've made a real effort to post stellar, great wines yeah. I've had from, you know, yeah. people around here or in California in general. Tell me about this in terms of price point, uh, availability, and how people can find the wine. Well, it's a tiny production. Obviously, if you're using Sanford and Benedict Pinot Noir, we're not making a lot of it. Um, it's, uh, it's $28 retail. It's pretty much only available direct from, uh, from the, our tasting room mm -hmm. or from the winery or from the website, which is just bardenwines.com. You know, every single wine we make under the Barden label is in the 200 to 400 case quantity, so there's not very much. But mm -hmm. um, uh, we have a little bit of distribution in New York. Some of the Manhattan restaurants uh, like them. The price range for the whole line is 28 to 82, rosé okay. being 28, but the, some of the single vineyard Pinot Noirs are 82. So it's hard to find, um, but you can seek it out on the website, yeah. and the best place to drink it would be at your tasting room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like or that. at home with the tasting room. <laughs> yeah. So here we have the M5 Red, which we now say M5 Red because we now make M5 White. Um, it is a uh, blend of uh, primarily Grenache, blended with Syrah, Morved, Cunoise, and Cinso. And it's primarily from the estate, but we do buy grapes for it. The white is all estate. And you don't put any, you don't sneak any white wine in here. I do actually. Ah. But I'm not going to change the name to M6. <laughs> Three out of the five blocks of the Estate Syrah are co-planted to Viognier. Okay. So they all have Viognier in them. And we have Co-fermented or? Co-fermented. Mm. I think it's, I think, I think that's the only reason to do it. The, sure. The reason you co-ferment with white wine grapes is they have enzymes that are separate from mm -hmm. the red grapes that help set color and they add aromatics, but just adding Viognier or another white grape to a red wine doesn't really fit the bill. Just dilutes it. Yeah, that's not, yeah. not the whole purpose is to co-ferment. Right. So right. we have a state Viognier too, so we can also add Viognier. Uh, mm -hmm. But we, the three blocks are planted to 5% Viognier, so it's red, 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 white, white, white. Just like Corotis. Red, red, just exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter the ripeness level for the, for the white, we just add it no matter what. Mm -hmm. And you decided to do Cunois and Cinso wines yep. that most people have no idea a how to say or b yep. where they come from. But for the and for it makes it gives it this incredible complexity mm -hmm. in the nose. You can even you, we see consumers even doing that. They're just wow. you know, right. It's really floral. Yeah, it's got a lot of base fruit, especially from the Grenache. It's Grenache based, and then you get the little uh, different. Mm -hmm. Interesting aromatics of the briar, you know, from the senso, and then from the the very fruity watermelon candy mm -hmm. from the cunoise, and the nice earthiness of the morved, and 
the How pepper many cases and spice. are you making? In this? So this we make a, uh, anywhere from twenty four hundred to thirty six hundred cases okay. a year. Just so a small on the, production, on the very small. Mm -hmm. M5 White's about eighteen hundred cases. Okay, <clears throat> that's limited because we're going to try and keep that in a state wine. And tell me about your your fermentations. Like, what's your everything's open top. All red okay. wines are open top fermentation okay. to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, we still do anything pump over and everything. Just like three quarter ton bins? Uh, they're or? in a, a ton and a quarter, the, okay. the T bins. Okay, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. a little bit bigger T bins. Uh, they're insulated. We keep the wineries stupidly cold. So our fermentations are very, very long. So we mm. get long, cool, low extraction, hand punched down fermentations. And we actually press before, uh, you know, we press at one bricks primarily. Mm -hmm. <coughs> we press sweet into barrel. Okay. We let primary and secondary happen in each individual barrel, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's a complete pain in the ass. Most people press, sure. put it in tank, warm it up, mm -hmm. get the mallet through, mm -hmm. and then put it to barrel because you don't have to. So you skip that step. We have to, we do mallet barrel by barrel. Wow. And one of the things that has made that possible is, you know, we've been doing it forever. But before we used to go, you know, do the ear on the bung trick, mm -hmm. and if you still if it's, sounds like rice crispy, yeah, if it's still crisp, yeah, the snap crackle pop, it's still going through mallow. But now we have a, a foss, which we can okay, just yeah. take. We can take a drop and put it into the wonderful foss machine. It'll Gotta love the technology today. Oh, it's changed, it's changed our life. This is like 120 barrels. Wow! And you're letting each barrel go through mallow lactic on its own. Okay, that seems like uh, a lot of work. Why do you work. do that? I'm not opposed to potassium metabisulfite, but I'm allergic to it. Mm. And so if I get a hit of sulfur, I get a sinus infection really? almost immediately. So my, all the wines are extremely low in sulfur. So we, uh, we do preservation through uh, lees, which are natural antioxidants. Mm -hmm. So if you go in dirty into barrel, it has a, a, quite a it's bit of lees in it. By going through mallow and having the primary finish in barrel, there's a large amount of CO2 in the wine. We bung in, so it keeps the CO2. It's and so the CO2 protects it from oxygen. CO2 is protects it from oxygen. And then mm -hmm. the CO2 also keeps the lees suspended. Mm -hmm. so, oh yeah, so it's bubbling up the lees. Exactly and, and right. Stirring so you don't for get, you. Yeah, you don't get the compact lees you'd get if you didn't have the CO2. Okay, I might have to borrow that technique from you, my own. You're welcome to. I tell I like it to everybody. That. I'm not, I'm not shy idea. about it. Is that something that you learned in France? The only, uh, just no, through a combination of just trying to figure out ways of not using sulfur in the wine and not having to rack it. So we never rack any of the reds mm -hmm. until we bottle. What a great adaptation. It works good and the wines, I'm, I believe that sulfur is a prophylactic and people overuse it because it's just easy. I don't think it helps wines age at all and I think the downfall of aging American wines has been the overuse of, of sulfites. That it's a natural antioxidant, but you know it has a you know the life of it goes right, just crashes right away. You have right to keep using more and more. Keep using more and more. So we don't use hardly any, but uh, you I could grab an 01 of this wine and it's just as fresh and bright as the 17 is. So right um, before bottling, we do add a little bit of salt. What, what parts per million? Uh, so our sort of regimen for white is uh, 30 60, 30 uh, free 60 total, mm -hmm. and for the reds it's 20 40. Wow, it's so yeah. low. It's really, but really low. But because it has the tannin and yeah. the the only, the only problem is when people come to the winery, and this is the funniest thing, I'm like, they're tasting out of barrel and I'm like, okay, I tell them about the, the lees. So the wines are turbid, they're dirty, and we keep them dirty the whole time, and they're gassy. And so I'll say, you know, the wines are gonna be a little bit gassy, they're gonna be a little bit cloudy, and then of course the person tastes, he goes, this is like dirty and gassy, and I'm like, yeah, no shit, I just told you that, you know? <laughs> so, but that's the only downfall, is that when you have people come to the winery, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're not in a place sure. that, now obviously the M5 is dirty and gassy, it's a 10 month program, the wines that are in the two-year program, the single vineyard Syrahs and the state Syrahs, by two years, 
that that gas is dissipated, the leaves have fallen down, and the wine's pretty clear. So, so you we recommend we have to filter. No, we have to filter this, but the mm. other ones we we go oh, in, I see. we go in unfiltered. Okay, so um, the unfiltered wines you recommend aging two to oh, three yeah. years oh, at least, or longer. Okay, or longer. You know the whole problem with that is, if someone says how long should I age your wine, I say, don't drink them and buy more. Also, I want them. I want the, the complexities that come about with a, with especially the Syrahs and the Pinot Noir are dramatic and the wines improve dramatically and become much more interesting wines with always, five to 15 years. I always recommend buying a case. If you really like yeah. a wine, buy a case of it because you can open a bottle a year for 12 years. Right. And, then you, and if you get to that yeah. year where you're like, ah, it's just not quite as good as then the year before, then yeah. you yeah. give it away or drink it all. Yeah. So That's a good, uh, that's the other one I tell people is they said, I, I never save wine. I said, buy more wine than you can possibly drink. Mm -hmm. And then you will end up saving it because you, you can't drink all that wine. Right. And you get to see the, the bell-shaped curve of a wine, obviously, if you're tasting a wine, the same wine every year. To me, that's really getting to know yeah, a wine. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So this is delicious. What price point and availability on, on this? It's $28. Um, it's available uh, in select markets nationally. We're in Whole Foods, obviously, um, but also through the website mm -hmm. you know, at the tasting room. Nice. I, I liked that I had that connection with so many people up here through the wine cask, and, yeah. and I just I, that's gone now, and I, I, know. I don't get out anymore, you know. And you I should. And I, well, you were kind of a conduit, you know, for for all of us. That's that's a really cool thing that you did for us. You know, you may not even realize the the power of that. No, I I, I realize it. You know, that launched Santa Barbara County as a wine region to the the U.S. for for a lot of wineries, mm -hmm. and, and this we people really didn't know Santa Barbara County at all. And, and uh, didn't understand it in the whole story, which we still tell still today. You know, it's one of the coldest growing climates. We have the transverse mountain range, the whole, all the things we set, say every day when we're out promoting. Well, you were helping to write that narrative back yeah. in the days. We had to, it was something you have to explain because you think of Santa Barbara, you think of beach, and bathing suits, and, right. and, and oranges, but- American you know, Riviera. Right, <laughs> so, you, so you gotta, it's, uh, it's, you have to always constantly remind people why it's such a phenomenal place to grow grapes. Let's talk about that. So, you know, you've made wines all over the world, and as we just learned in France as well, and you consult for a variety of different wineries. Um, why is Santa Barbara wine country such a special place from a viticultural perspective? Well, just the, uh, the fact that in one valley that we're right in the middle of, you can grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in one of the coldest growing climates on limestone and diatomaceous earth, go all the way through Ballard, uh, Los Livos district all the way out to Happy Canyon where you're growing Bordeaux varietals. I mean that climate change from the west to the east is is dramatic. That you can have this success with different grape varieties from one viticultural area is pretty amazing. Obviously the, the soil sets certainly in Santa Rita Hills and in uh, Happy Canyon are you know super low nutrient soils and so the, the quality of the, the grapes is quite high. Here in the Los Livos district in Ballard, you know, certainly I think it's, I think the Rhone varietals seem to be the, the thing that are, are happening, but not in this little nook where you have here, which, you know, with your neighbor and with Calira, where you seem to be focusing on Bordeaux varietals mm -hmm. as, as well mm -hmm. here, colder but, climate. But there are these little mesoclimates, these little yeah. pockets, depending yeah. on altitude, or, you know, the, the elevation and, and these little swaths of fog that kind of come up and they're channeled yeah. along the San Inez River. And we're at the lowest point here, really one of the lowest points right. in our section of the valley. So we get a cold pocket down here yeah, too, it's but, but it's these bizarre swings. I mean, we'll have a hundred degree day and a 40 degree night. Yeah, that's well, that's one of the selling points about Santa Barbara County is the diurnals, the temperature, the temperature between day and night 
you know, that 40 degree swing means that the grapes don't ripen as quickly as they do in some of the other areas where it's warm during the day and then warm at night. You go to Napa, you're still sitting it's outside warm. at 10 o'clock at night, it's 80 degrees. Yeah, summers, yeah. yeah and yeah. here that just doesn't happen. You mm -hmm. have to, you know, I always say it's t-shirt, shirt, sweater, vest, hat, and then you, you, you take those all off then you put them all back on again. That's right. Spending the time of day. That's right. That's what makes it, that the diurnals, the transverse mountain range and the opening to the cold Pacific Ocean and the soil set make this a very, very special mm -hmm. place for making wine. And we see it. I mean, we, we go out there and people, I think we're booming. I think everyone, that's sort of why we all are such friends and colleagues and we all work together. We are in competition to some degree, but we all feel like we're together. You know, is that why you're such a proponent of the Santa Barbara wine country brand as opposed to just like drilling down on your AVA specifically? Well, I make Los Livos, Santa Rita Hills, and Happy Canyon, so I, I'm, I have to be a proponent for that. I, I, I'm probably a little bit of a, too much of a proponent for San Inez Valley versus our other two wonderful valleys, you know, Los Alamos and, and Santa Maria. I'm definitely focused on San Inez Valley. Mm -hmm. Which you are too, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I always <coughs> tell people, you know, the San Inez Valley is really the heart of Santa Barbara wine country because really we is. are the epicenter and, and it is a very large AVA. It's, it's, it encompasses many different sub-appellations as right. well. Plus we have these cool towns, you know, like Los Olivos and San Inez and mm -hmm. these beautiful little enclaves of, of perfect weather and surrounded with great restaurants. And mm -hmm. Santa Maria and Los Alamos just haven't gotten that far to having the kind of other amenities that, uh, mm -hmm. that, that make being in a certain area so great. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I've lived here for many, many years and the restaurant scene now in the San Inez Valley is unbelievable. It's from, on fire. From industrial eats to San Inez Kitchen. Oh yeah. There's just so many great choices and places to eat that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no, believe me, I'm very grateful for the <laughs> restaurants because when we first got here, there was Garoppolo. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> was, I know. It was, that was, only it was Garoppolo one and, great restaurant. Garoppolo and yeah. then Garoppolo is where you yeah, went every exactly, time. Yeah. Exactly. So tell me about your vineyards and how so you we, farm. We have, we have one uh, estate vineyard, um, which is on Alamo Pintado Road. It's the old Honey Vineyard. We Honey was planted by Milt Honey to all Italian varietals about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, with a with great ambition and great drive and working with Steve Clifton to <coughs> really promote Italian varietals grown in Santa Barbara County. We bought some of those grapes for another project I was working on. I thought the quality was very good. It's just sadly, Italian varietals are impossible to sell in California, mm -hmm. uh, either as varieties, as grape, grapes, or as... Uh, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo. Yep, just Ernese, you know. Barbera. Uh, Barbera, mm -hmm. just, they just, in small little quantities, you can sell them, but as, as a program, it just wasn't successful. The only Italian wines we can really sell is Super Tuscan blends, right? Is that Yeah, I think so, if you, if you have a fanciful name for them, so right. you don't really know what Sangiovese. Right. Uh, yeah, I think the Sangiovese Merlot or Sangiovese Cab or Sangiovese mm -hmm. Syrah blends tend to pretty well. Sangiovese is a very adult grape. You know, it's got a lot of tannin, it's got a lot of acidity to it. It needs to age, it needs food, and so mm -hmm. it does its best when it's not necessarily best for aging, but for drinking now, it does its best when it's blended with something something else. So you've grafted over and now the you're... The entire vineyard, mm -hmm. we grafted everything over. It's all now 10 grape varieties. The five that are in M5 White, uh, Grenache Blanc, Marsan, Roussan, Viognier, and Picpoul Blanc. And the five that are in M5 Red, which is Grenache, Syrah, Morved, Cunoise, and Senso. And then the whole hillsides where that Sangiovese was, that was so spectacular, are planted to five different clones of Syrah, own rooted, 
Mm. Co-planted with Viognier, three, three of the blocks, and then a little half acre of Morvet and a half acre of Hillside uh, Grenache. So it's been a game changer. I'm trying to, uh, was that all 13 varieties of the Rhone? No, no, we have 10. 10, right, okay. I think there's even more than 13, but uh, yeah, yeah, we're missing Claret and Beaubou Blanc and uh, a couple of other ones. And we're pretty well covered on the the Rhone varietals. The whole plan was to, you know, be able to have control of organically farm a, a vineyard, which previously we were buying a lot of the grapes for, you know, even though M5 is only three to four percent Cunois and three to four percent Senso, that just the, the the latest releases under the M5 label have improved so much because the quality of those grapes has improved so much. Mm-hmm. The quality of all the grapes uh, that we're we're that we're farming now in these higher density plantings and organically farmed blocks in a in a cooler climate. Well, congratulations. Source is obviously paramount yeah. to yeah. making great wine. Um, we're delighted to have you in our Appalachian so you can help us cooperatively market our... Well, I think Los Olivos District is a great ABA and we're out there actively promoting mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit more focused on the Rhone varietals, but you know, Fred is Fred Brander has Bordeaux, Bordeaux varietals, mm-hmm. you guys have Bordeaux mm-hmm. varietals, Brave and Maiden has Bordeaux varietals. Yeah. So we understand that they could do the best, but I think I think the cachet for you is is that you have a colder climate Bordeaux varietals, which, mm-hmm. are, which are, you know, very unique, unique. Yeah, they're wines. very Bordelais. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lower alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your tasting rooms and your new ventures. You're a, you're a serial entrepreneur. You're constantly <laughs> you wear a lot of hats. Um, yeah. And actually, maybe we can talk about your current team and how who's your support team for your all these. And projects. we were talking about that earlier. How we, you know, it's great. You know, if anyone doesn't like it, it's someone else's fault. If you love it, it's all me. <laughs> uh, but. No, we have a great team. Uh, Michael Mirabali, who's been with me for about eight years, is the winemaker now. Uh, I've taken the title of Director of Winemaking, uh, but Michael is there hands-on every day making the wine. Uh, we, in 2012, we moved to Buellton and opened uh, our own space with all new equipment and tanks and better drains and the whole, the whole schmeal. Winery space, we have a barrel room space and then we have a warehouse space over there and it runs very officially and we've had a lot of the same people have been on the team brooks van wingerden who's been with me for like 10 years and christina panameno has been with me for like 10 years mm. and we've just had a really consistent uh, team come in and and the people who leave you know you the people leave you know your assistant winemaker gets a winemaker job so you're happy when that happens when yeah. they when they go up and, and, sure. and do better right um, right but the, the biggest news we've had is opening these two new taste rooms in downtown Santa Barbara. Uh, so we moved Marjoram to the Hotel California, which is right by the beach. Oh, that's nice. In this beautiful two-story tasting yeah, room. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And, uh, it's just beautiful. It's, it's a, unlike anything else down there. And, and we put a little kitchen in, so we're doing food. And then the old Marjoram tasting room, which was in El Paseo, is now the Barden tasting room. And it's just committed to selling and promoting Barden wines. And we expanded the Barden repertoire we just had Chardonnay Pinot Noir in a wine called Font, which is a Chardonnay Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris blend. Now we have Sanford and Benedict Old Vine Viognier. We have single vineyards from Sanford and Benedict of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. We're doing cold climate Santa Rita Hills Grenache and cold climate Santa Rita Hills Syrah, um, which are different expressions than what we're getting here in Los Olivos district. 
And uh, so we've really expanded the Barden offering and uh, we, we remodeled that taste room completely and it's beautiful. And you couldn't do it without the talent under you. Um, yeah. You know, it's probably become muscle memory for them now that they've worked with you for so long. They know what your protocols are. They know what, you know, yeah, your expectancies we, and, are. And we, you know, we're not rest, we don't want to make be recipe winemakers. You have to adapt to what you're, what we're going to get each year, which is something completely different, as you know, mm -hmm. some years like this year, we right. haven't even, things are just for aiding and it's August, whatever. And uh, so we're going to not pick grapes till middle of September, it looks like, which mm -hmm. is great. Yeah, you know, we're great, long out, hang time. Having a, having a nice summer. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about that. I've heard that you have lunch with your team at the yep. winery and that's something that has been a Santa Barbara tradition as long as I can remember with Clint Denon yep. and Bob. Um, I, just, I just, I emulate their program as far as how they run their winery almost exactly. We sit down and we have lunch as an entire team from vineyard to sales to production to whoever wanders by that day. And you do the cooking? <clears throat> I used to do the cooking a lot more. I don't do it as much as I, I do. I used to. I used to do it every day, but now I have my sous chef, a woman who's worked with me for now eight years. Is that right? No, about seven years. So she started in 12. She's become a, quite a good cook. What a great uh, position. I'm a sous chef for a winery. Yeah. Right? Well, she loves it. She's yeah. great. So she prepares lunch for us every, every Does she every prepare day. meals around the wines that you're tasting? Not really. Yeah. Uh, I do. When I'm cooking, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, you know, I'll do it around the season. And so if we, we eat a lot of tomatoes. Right now, we're about to eat a lot of tomatoes because tomatoes are coming on board. In the winter, I do much more heartier stews and, you know, braise things. I, I like to cook. I feel like, you know, it takes me about you know, an hour to go down from the office and prepare a meal for the staff. And I'm, I'm there cooking. People can come up and talk to me and ask me questions or I can taste wines while I'm doing that. And then I have Mirna who helps me. So I, we, I can generally plate up a, a lunch for 12 of four or five different courses in about an hour. Do you realize that after the show is released that <laughs> you're going to have so many job descriptions <laughs> uh, being sent to you yeah, in applications? Job applications. We've had a few people who, who, who know that we do this lunch and, yeah. and they'll come in and say, hey, around 11.59, like, hey, how's it going? Like, you know, we're just sitting down to lunch. Um, do you want to join us? Oh, that'd be great. Because <laughs> that happens That's all the some time. good marketing there, my friend. Rio, remember Rio Risewick from Colson Canyon? No. He's this farmer up in, you know, he's in the middle of nowhere up in Santa Maria, up mm. in Colson Canyon. Mm. And we would get grapes from him. We like to get grapes before dawn. You know, because it's still cold and we can process them while it's still cold in the morning. He had always delivered the grapes around 11.30 because he knew he was going to get a lunch out of it. <laughs> so we realized, like, oh, thanks. Like, oh, do you want to stay for lunch? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Delivery so, fee, right? Yeah. yeah. So he, 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 was, he was a good guy. Smart one. Yeah. So, Doug, you've raised two boys. Yep. Uh, you've raised a family as a winemaker now, and that's a big deal. Uh, it's not easy to make money in the wine business. You put them through school and do you think they're going to possibly get in the wine business or what's happening with the legacy plan? Um, well, they're, I mean, the legacy is that if they will inherit the, the winery, a Burgundian man told me to not let your children come right after college back and work for you. Mm -hmm. it, there's always resentment. Two things. I'm not ready to retire. <laughs> You're a young man. I'm still. a young man yeah. still, and uh, I'm not. So I'm not ready to stop my work. Mm -hmm. And I want them to go out and and have their own successes and failures and, and learn have life lessons. They can go work for another winery, but they can't work for this winery. Mondavi did that. I remember he had yeah. his kids and grandkids go work for other wineries yeah. in Napa before letting them or apply the yeah. for the family winery. Right. But now, given 
that you know all through high school and college and they come back in summer and they both know how to drive the forklift they both know how to dump the grapes they know how to do bung patrol they they know how they know the processes of the winery but they're two you know like most kids as you know they're 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 two different people and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the older one i think is more in the sales and marketing aspect of it and the other uh other boys studying geology oh which perfect. is perfect yeah and, uh, so if, if there comes a time when they do take it over, I, th I, I think there'd be a nice mix owning it. Owning I have the same together. exact situation. I have a left brainer and a right brainer. And, yeah. And How old are your kids? Um, Miles just turned 16. Okay. It's scary. Yeah. Uh, and Mason is turning 14 next, okay. next so month. Okay. So you're right in that, right in that mm -hmm. mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's right where I was right when I sold the restaurant which was perfect timing because all of a sudden I had just all this time. Two boys, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so two boys, you know, with their dad. It's just so much fun. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. Just the other day I was out on the, on the ranch with Mason and teaching him stick shift in my CJ7. I call right. it my midlife car. Yeah, no, um, I, I taught, but, I, I know, taught the great. stick shift at, at the vineyard I lived on because they yeah. could crash and wouldn't yeah. matter. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, gosh, we have some parallels there. Yeah. And well, you're a little bit behind me. Yeah. So. Well, I'm a, I, so I graduated in '89. I think you graduated '83. Let's from say high that. School. Okay. So, so you're we're roughly a decade yeah. uh, apart. Um, but uh, now I'm catching up with you. Yeah. Right? And our ages are getting closer <laughs> yeah. and closer. Yeah. I was thinking that when I was when I was just pulling up here, I'm like, I'm catching was, up with the gray. How, how old you were? And I'm like, yeah, he's closer to me than he was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what happens. We've matured gracefully. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you still look super young though. Uh, Thank you. So aside from the viticultural differences between Santa Barbara and other regions, I like to say that Santa Barbara County is made up of a cast of characters, right? Mm -hmm. So many different people with different walks of life who've ended up here and they're super passionate for the most part. I'd say out of the 200 wineries, all of them seem to have this insane passion for the brand yeah. of Santa Barbara and the soil and the, the climate and the grapes they're working with. What do you like most about the culture here? You know, when you go to Bordeaux and you're going from chateau to chateau to chateau, the differences in the winemaking is so minute. They all have their whole regimen out there and they show it to you though. We, we pick up this bricks, we, temp we ferment at this temperature, we, do, we put in this tank, we pump over this many times a day. And there's, there's not much differences in it. Here, you know, I'll be visiting with somebody and they'll be saying how they're making their wine. I'm like, nuts, you know, and they'll, they'll come to me like, why do you do that? And then, you know, we'll taste the wine. I'm like, you know, I really like this wine. I think we're, a lot of us are getting to the same place in a lot of different ways. It's the Wild West. I mean, there's no rules. We, I, think, I think what I really appreciate is, and I love, and I, I probably, uh, you know, we go, to, we go to Deerberg a lot, and, and they come to us, and we go to Foxen a lot because I'm really good friends with Billy, and we share ideas. And... And a lot of the winemaking is very, very different and, and somewhat avant-garde and people have different opinions about what their, what their final goal is going to be. But all in all, the quality level of the entire region is, is quite high. And just a lot of the other viticultural and, and grape varieties, like the Stoltman's just always planting some new grape variety mm -hmm. you know, all the time and trying something <laughs> new. So I think there's a lot of uh, experimentation and different, different techniques that are all proven successful. My problem is I came from the restaurant world and I visited wineries all through that whole time with, and with Jim and Bob and I pretty much had my, in my mind what I wanted to make and what I wanted to taste like. On the fringes I do some experimentation but you know the M5 Red program for 18 years has been pretty consistent. 
same with the Sauvignon Blanc. It's been happy cating from day one because I remember tasting Brian Babcock's 11 Oaks Sauvignon Blanc. That's right. And thinking that was the best thing in the world. He, I took over that block at, at McGinley, which was at that time westerly. Westerly. And mm-hmm. have, that's still the basis of my Sauvignon Blanc is that, is that block and that idea of, of Babcock's wine and Fred Brander's Au Natural. You know, those mm-hmm. were my benchmarks. And mm-hmm. so for the most part, you know, we're, we're, I deal in pretty classic expressions of wine that are not too far out there. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like this wide variety of winemaking styles is a good thing, right, Absolutely. for the consumer. They oh, get to fantastic. come here and be a kid in a candy store, yeah. so to speak. And, you know, Santa Rita with its Pinots and Shards and Cool Climate Syrahs and yeah. Happy Canyon with Cabernets and Bordeaux varietals and people experimenting with different methods. Like yeah. you said, orange wine, which people don't even understand what the heck that is. Right. It's bizarre. But they're willing to experiment because they're not mired down by a history here. There yeah. is such a youthful enthusiasm and excitement around right. winemaking it. And in order to differentiate yourself in the marketplace, you have to experiment. You have you to do. try new things. Yeah. But I mean, even just talking about the, the, you know, we keep the winery stupidly cold because every great winery I've been to in my life has been cold. You go to Dominic Lafon's cellar in Mirso. It's, it's known as the coldest cellar in Mirso. <laughs> you know, you, and, you, and so everyone seems to have their issues. I have sulfur issues. I don't want sulfur in the wine. I wanna, I wanna preserve through other methodologies. But other people choose a different path. And it's just, you sort of get to the same place with using different techniques. Well, I've learned a lot about not only you, but uh, your winemaking style today. And I really appreciate having you on this show. Thanks for spending your time with me. Cheers. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon, and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Shalafant, and music by Peter Seibert. Special thanks goes to Doug Margerum, Margerum Wine Company, and Barden Wines. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. 2020 Rare Works, LLC.